The Athletic. Hello listeners, this is producer Ben, and as you know, Team Totally is taking a bit of a break after this most marathon of seasons. But following Monday's news about the death of Silvio Berlusconi, we're republishing this two-parter from our old show Galazzo, all about the man who helped make Milan such a formidable force in Italian and European football in the late 80s, the 90s and the noughties. It was recorded in March 2020 and features, of course, Gab Marcotti alongside James Horncastle and James Richardson. Today on Golazzo, hi-ho Silvio, it's the Berlusconi story. We chart the irresistible rise of perhaps modern Calcio's single most important figure, the man who made Milan, the man who transformed the Italian game. Somewhere in the Adriatic, a fresh-faced young Italian with a winning smile is entertaining his cruise ship passengers. It is the late 1950s, and that man will grow up to be the most powerful figure in Italy and the most successful football club owner in the world. He is Silvio Berlusconi, and this is part one of his story. Gabriele Marcotti. Hello. Hello, Gab and James Horncastle. Meno male che James che. <laughs> oh, dearie me. Uh, lovely to see you both. Lovely to be back with another Golazzo. Uh, and a Golazzo today with a very special soundtrack, as you were just hinting there. So many great bits of music associated with Silvio and his career, many of which were actually composed by the great man himself. <laughs> Your favourite, Gab, I think is this. That is, of course, the theme song for his 2010 Nobel Prize for Peace candidature. Exactly. Now, this was after, um, obviously, the earthquakes in the Abruzzi region, and he single-handedly fixed everything and put everything back. But we joke about it, and the chorus especially is pretty absurd. And to be fair to him... Translate the chorus for us. It's, siamo qui per te, we're here from you. Cuore, anima, heart and soul. Yeah. Un solo pensiero, just one thought. Yeah. Silvio, Silvio, grande è. Silvio, Silvio is great. Who put this record out? <laughs> well, here's the thing. <laughs> it's that is really, incredible. You could actually, you had the lyrics. This song's been in my head since I first heard it. He did not win the Nobel Peace Prize, as you probably know. Um, also because it was never clear to me how, you know, obviously rebuilding after natural catastrophe is a very serious uh, job, but it's got nothing to do with peace but anyway to be fair to him there's Berlusconi and then there's also and this is a a very familiar um, theme in Italy there's bazillions uh, and that's a technical term Mm. of Berlusconi toadies and people who go out and kiss his rear end and and have done so throughout his career 
I have no idea if he's involved with this song. Oh. It is about him. Mm-hmm. It's but, from the official site of the campaign to uh, see him awarded. The, but the campaign yeah. mm-hmm. might be entirely unrelated to him and just be sort of fans of his, and he might be right. bashful. I really want to see players who want to win the Ballon d'Or release their own song as part of their kind of campaign. Don't lobbying. give him any ideas. <laughs> Don't give that guy any ideas, please. Um, but what I'm saying is it speaks into this idea of sort of like the powerful man at the top who's good and he's really got a kind heart and he will fix things. He'll resolve matters. Mm. Whether it's Berlusconi, whether it's performing in the world of, of politics, Giulio Andreotti being the, the obvious other example. It's like in Italy, we have such a lack of faith in institutions that we believe that to get something done, it's better to attach yourself to somebody powerful and connected because those people ultimately are good because our institutions are rotten. Right. Well, today we're going to be beginning our look at how this cruise ship crooner became that figure. Gabrielli's frowning already. Cruise became. ship crooner. I think I first read that in like a piece. But it's true, Gab. Did. I know, but it's like one of the billion things okay, he what did. Other, what other things did he do? He's a man of many what? talents. He sold Hoovers. Is that right? You meaning he's a self-made man? Yeah, yeah, no, I'm not being disparaging. It's just interesting that he made the journey from that to being Il Cavaliere, Sua Emittenza, Berlusca, the dominant figure in the last 20 years of Italian sport Everyone and politics. Has to start somewhere, James. Right, absolutely. Well, how did he make that leap? That's what we're looking at in part one, the beginning. You're listening to Galazzo, the totally Italian football show. So, here he is, born into a well-to-do but essentially middle-class Milanese family. Is that right? In 1936, Gab? Yeah, I, I, think, that's, I think that's a fair assessment. I think. So, so how did he become the man we now know as Berlusconi, wait. president of Milan, prime minister four times? James, wait, I mean, you're, you're forgetting how he very nearly became a professional footballer for mm. the club that he loves and would later buy AC Milan. Remember when he was in the process of selling um, and he wanted it to go into good Italian hands um, he produced that uh, photo, which was a very dubious kind of provenance of a 16-year-old Silvio in the red and black shirt of AC Milan, about to have a trial. But some people have actually looked into it and think it's a bit of a Photoshop from a, really? another photo of, of Silvio, because, of course, there's no record of Berlusconi, aside from his you know, pristine memory. Italy in the 1960s and 70s, suddenly in Milan... There's a man who's building an entire suburb to the south of the city, Milano Due, Silvio Berlusconi. How did he become that kind of construction magnet? So, let me try to be as down the middle on, on this and as as possible. The 60s were <laughs> represented for Italy a real economic boom. Typical thing after the war, reconstruction. Factories up north started booming. There was full employment. All these people came up from the south. And these cities these cities were all growing. And the natural tendency at the time from, from the state was like, you know, let's build more tower blocks and, and whatnot. But it was when he spotted an opportunity. And he'd also traveled a bit. And he said, well, not everybody wants to live in a tower block with no park and no greenery. And because while he didn't, as you mentioned, he didn't come from a wealthy family, but he came from a family that was that was well connected in social circles. His, his father had uh, had worked for a bank, um, so he knew a lot of people who not just were potential investors, but were potential clients as well, 
who basically said, all right, where's my son going to go live? You know, I, right now I live in this nice big apartment in the center of Milan, maybe even with a, with a little garden out back. He's not going to be able to afford that. They're not building anything like that. So he created this idea of sort of the garden suburb. And it was something that was in vogue at the time. I mean, mm. I'm sure you know better than I do when Hampstead Garden Suburb was built. But the 60s was, <laughs> was kind of the idea of when people started saying like, you know, new cities, new towns and so on. And, and he built this and it was phenomenally successful because a lot of people wanted to live there. And the money from that, he then uses to start his advertising agency. And then in 1973 to set up Italy's first private TV station, Tele Milano. Right place, right time, as, as so often happens, right, in, in history. Setting up his, his, his advertising agency came at a time when almost all of private advertising in Italy, from billboards to print to what little advertising was on television to radio, was dominated by two companies who effectively operated as a cartel. So he's a very good salesman. He basically set up his own company and essentially undercut them, or he would say offered fair value. And he just started gobbling up market share, which then made him uh, made him even stronger. I think get a real sense also from the idea of what the public wanted. The public was very aspirational. Yeah, you know, he got a lot of his ideas from the United States, and obviously that would then influence later his TV channels and probably Milano Due as well. But it was true. That's kind of what people wanted breaking out of the 70s. Where he really hit his stride was in the 80s. But what he did with Tele Milano and how he built his national networks. Um, was pretty clever. Essentially, the government realized that they had national television stations, but you needed local coverage as well. So they didn't want rival commercial national competitors, but they liberalized local television. So as long as you won't only operate in a market, you basically could start your own TV channel right. without a license or with a very limited license. And the way that he then takes that Tele Milano, that local channel, into essentially uh, Italy's first national commercial network, tells some interesting things about the way his friendships uh, enabled his rise. I don't, wouldn't say friendships. I mean, you could say his creativity. I thought what okay. he did was brilliant and really creative. What he did was the law said you can't broadcast nationally. Mm -hmm. So what he did was he bought local television stations uh, in different markets, different cities all over the country. And he said, okay, well, we're not going to broadcast nationally. We're just going to all broadcast the exact same programs <laughs> at the same time. And then that makes it more lucrative to sell ads around it and whatever. But what they were not allowed to do was broadcast live. And for all the criticism you get later, I'm trying to be fair to Berlusconi here. This wasn't about politics because Berlusconi's television stations, they didn't even have news programs right. until many, many years later. It was purely entertainment, a lot of American shows, comedy shows, Dallas. stuff like that. In amongst all this, Berlusconi's launched Fininvest, his kind of He was the company. football team coach of Edel Nord, no? Wasn't ah, that one of his companies as well? Right. Yeah, yeah. It's where, you know, he... Edel Nord was the company that constructed uh, Milano yeah, Due, and he, he basically, as well as running that, did their football team as well. I bet they were really successful. In 1978, he also joined the Masonic Lodge P2. <laughs> P. Dewey, which must have been handy. P. Dewey went a little bit beyond the usual Masonic yeah, that's activity. Problem. Yeah, that's the problem. and Yeah, so yeah. this is really weird. So being a Mason in Italy, mm -hmm. not seen as a good thing right, right now because these are secret societies or whatever. So basically the, the one Masonic group of which there was some controversy whether he was a member or not, now it's pretty much established that he was a member of this group, was led by a guy named Licio Gelli. 
as in Jelly, who turned out to be not a particularly nice person and ended up going to prison. Mm. Also, part of Pidue was Bettina Craxi, I think, no? Well, anyone who's anyone was part of Pidue, no? Right. Bettina Craxi is a, is a key figure, I think, for all Berlusconi's creativity, but his friendship with Bettina Craxi is particularly interesting. If Italy was Game of Thrones, Craxi would be who? He, he would look like Lord Varys, but he'd be kind of more the little finger, do you think, of the... I don't of the watch scenario, Game of Thrones. all right, but the, Sorry, it's it basically fantasy. it's not really my. It's, he's the it guy who silly. holds it all together, who wheels, who deals. Yeah, Secretary General of the PSI, the Tunisia. But, but, but it's important <laughs> to understand why that was the case because right. we might have mentioned this before. But Italy had the largest communist party in the West for basically the entire post-war period. They routinely got about thirty percent of the vote, and then you had the Christian Democratic Party, which is sort of a bog-standard center-right party. And then in the middle, in addition to some smaller crappy parties, you had the Socialist Party, which would get maybe between 8 and 12% of the vote. Right. The PSI. The PSI. What that meant was two things. One is on a local level, they could form coalitions either with the communists or with the Christian Democrats. And effectively, they kind of decided, you know, they moved the needle one way or the other. So they had- Kingmakers. They were kingmakers. Yeah, good word there. (laughs) The other problem was- At the height of the Cold War, it would have been extremely problematic for a country in a strategic position, 60 million people in U.S. Army bases, Mm. if they turned communist. There were certainly rumors or suggestions that several powerful countries, like perhaps the United States and the CIA, would make sure that Italy could never make that mistake, even though the Italian communists were not super affiliated with the Soviet Union by any stretch. So as a result... All the Socialist Party had to do in the 80s was say, nah, we're not going to form a coalition of Christian Democrats and sit out. And then there'd be a crisis and nobody could form a government. And so eventually he accrued so much power that he became prime minister. Crax. He was also also fortunate that it was the 80s. It was Mm -hmm. the boom times. Mm -hmm. It was the years of, 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 of Coke and fast cars and rampant commercialism. Primesville. That came later. Mm -hmm. But... But it's fruit of the same. But it is fruit of that same yeah. ethos. Let's have fun, right? Let's yeah. go. And the 70s in Italy and the late 60s, they were, they were marked by terrorism and the oil crisis and the three-day week. Oh, no, that was your people. But still, it was generally pretty crappy. Right. And suddenly in the 80s, it was all fun and glamorous. And Berlusconi is all about fun and glamour. Right. And great pop. Right. Anyway, Craxi, who would later be best man at Silvio Berlusconi's second wedding, uh, proved crucial when, when Silvio Berlusconi's three-station national commercial network was found to be in breach of the uh, laws about competing with state broadcasters. Craxi's government passed an emergency decree, the Legge Mami, no? I think. Mami. Mami. Uh, Legalising Berlusconi's TV stations. Boom. So Berlusconi, property developer, advertising tycoon, and now a TV mogul. In the mid-80s... You left out the supermarkets. La Standa. He gave people what they wanted, as you say, and also what he wanted. But in the mid-80s, he was ready for his next great challenge, Calcio. Manchester City have just made history in Istanbul, a city that four months previously suffered a series of devastating earthquakes. In the build-up to this year's Champions League final, the Athletics' Adam Leventhal visited Turkey for a special two-part audio documentary looking at the impact of February's natural disaster on the country, its people and their football clubs. This is the 
Hatai Spore home dressing room. And it really is a, a remarkable, but also poignant scene because it's very much been suspended in time. After the, the victory that evening, Christian Atsu obviously scored uh, the winning goal. That's where he would have been sat and got changed and, and then gone home. But all around as well, there is remnants of just a usual post-match um, from the, the wraps around players' shin pads to sock tape to post-match meal plates to tissues to bottles of water, fizzy drinks, uh, bananas over in the corner. It is pretty much as it would have been when they all left that night. And then obviously we know what happened afterwards. You can listen to football on Turkey's Fault Line for free. It's part of our new Go Deeper strand. Just search for The Athletic Go Deeper wherever you get your podcasts. It's the summer of 1986, and out of the grey skies of Milan come three helicopters to the soundtrack of Wagner. They're bringing Berlusconi's first Milan side to meet the fans, the what would become their traditional presentation. Gabriele, give us a little bit of a background here. We all know Milan as a global power, or what then became a global power. But Milan that Berlusconi had taken over was coming through some very hard times. Yeah, in fact, there's a weird parallel between Milan and Manchester United in the sense that these are two obviously global brands, global clubs, won a lot. But it all really happened in two periods of, of their existence, right? So with, with United, obviously, the, the 50s and 60s and Busby, and then the Sir Alex era. And with Milan, also that sort of 50s and 60s, and then the Berlusconi era, which again, also, I'm just realizing this now, also weirdly overlapped with yeah. Sir Alex Ferguson. And so at that point, you had a situation with Milan where the president was this, this awful man named uh, Farina. Mm. Juicy. <laughs> whose name we, whose name means flour, yeah. as in like not flour, as in flour like, that you bake with. Flour that, yeah, 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 which about sums him up. That's about juicy flour. His consistency. <laughs> um, but Milan had won a league title in 1978-79 with a very young centre back named Franco Baresi, who was I believe 18 at the time, nicknamed mm -hmm. Il Piscinin, the, the 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 little guy. But the problem is, a year later they got caught up in uh, the first caught up. Um, in the first betting scandal. Right. In, uh, Calcio Scomesse. Calcio Scomesse atto primo. The police and, cars turn up on the side of the pitch and, <laughs> on yeah. the last day of the season. <laughs> yeah. They were forcibly relegated. Right. Then they, they immediately get promotion, but then they all get, they get relegated again. Yeah. And people were generally losing faith. Farina realized he, he wasn't going to make money off this. He didn't have any money left uh, of his own. And to give you an idea of what the situation is, they had this player named Sergio Battistini who was like this obsession among Milan fans. And, and he said that, you know, well, we, we need to sell him to make money. And there were big protests and everything. And then eventually he was sold, I think, to Fiorentina. Mm. It was just generally, 
it, it felt like something we've seen before, right? Right. Big clubs that have kind of lost it all, and there's no way back in. 85, 86, all of a sudden the tax inspectors are calling because Milan haven't versato their IRPEF. They haven't, they haven't paid their, their dues tax-wise. Whether those tax inspectors were in any way pushed by Silvio Berlusconi, who had been for months talking about how it would be a dream for him to take over the club that he'd always supported. But in any case, Farina, with the club on the verge of bankruptcy, flees the country, I think, and Berlusconi comes in, buys the club on the 20th of February 1986. There's some suggestions from Farina that he never saw a lira, by the way, from yeah, the acquisition. Yeah, so the guy talks a lot. What uh-huh. I would say about Farina, um, well, first of all, about fleeing the country, for those, you guys know this, but for those who haven't been to Milan, Fleeing the country for a lot of people who've done some <laughs> rather dubious hard. thing Tough is <laughs> you drive an hour to Chiasso, yeah, and you cross the border into Switzerland. Right. Switzerland, of course, will, as we all know, will take just about anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that a lot of Milanese businessmen have taken advantage of. I think what... Farina was on the, he was on the brink of going bankrupt now. Right. I mean, ultimately, you could pick up Milan very cheaply, yeah. depending if you had the right... I'm also going to give the justification for people like Farina Mm -hmm. or indeed many of Berlusconi's friends. These businessmen had made a fair amount of money. The government was running deficits and overspending and whatever. And they said that the tax burden was unbelievably high. So if I could hide money across the border, Mm -hmm. usually in Switzerland, they could very easily do it. As you say, James, the club was on the verge of bankruptcy. I think it's fair to say. Within three years... Berlusconi will have taken them from that precarious position to being champions of the world. Whatever we may think about his politics, his parties, he was spectacularly good at running a football club. Also, I think, you know, Gab has touched upon his business sense, um, his intuition. Everyone who worked for Milan at the time, be it players, but particularly coaches like, for example, Saki, I mean, that was... To pluck him out of the second division, someone who'd never played the game, was seen as a crazy move. In the end, it was a revolutionary move. But, um, yeah, Saki talks about how well-organized Milan were as a club and how uh, they were organized differently from any other club that he'd ever coached before. And I think that would be true of top managers who were way above him in the kind of hierarchy and that they would have a convention for four days um, in some castle on Lake Como where... Everyone involved in the club would come along. You know, Berlusconi essentially created new roles for new roles that never existed before. Be it something as basic as having a stuff we now take for granted, like having a psychologist or mm. having a um, an orthopedician or or a traumatologist, and all the all these different people who essentially made Milan. And this would be a theme throughout the Berlusconi era, be it with Milan Lab and all those other yeah, things. Like, you know, James keeps bringing up medical stuff, possibly <laughs> because he's from Hull, which is known for its medical supply industry. Mm. But he went way beyond that. I mean, marketing roles, PR right. roles. Um, I would say that when you went to Milan, a Milanello, there was an air of professionalism about everything there. And this went through all the media set and Fininvest, pretty much every kind of manifestation of, of Berlusconi's uh, empire, had a, a feeling of professionalism, which really was in stark contrast in that time to a lot of the more Casareccio approaches and certainly the, the other Serie A teams. Yeah, it's the, the, the contrast between you know clubs that are run sort of as a big family, which mm. is the way, not just Serie A teams, but you know a lot of clubs in this country as, as recently as the late 90s. I mean, you you know, as you go to Chelsea in 1997 and mm. like 
they didn't have a fitness coach. They didn't have a calm person, let didn't alone have a, a training department. Ground. You didn't even have a training ground. And then you look at how quickly, you know, they, yeah. they advanced and moved beyond that. Um, but Berlusconi brought all of that. He brought the other thing that he did, which, you know, we can all laugh at now and people laugh at him all the time, but was really innovative and cutting edge is... Bandanas? He, oh, sorry. No. <laughs> I forgot about that. He, he brought in people from, you know, obviously his, his business empire spanned many, you know, from films to television to real estate to advertising. He would regularly bring in people from different parts of his business empire to right. go, and the idea was he thought it would cross-pollinate ideas. Synergy. And this happened Fabio with Capello. Capello. Yeah. And that's obviously what would happen with, with Capello, although we are in a book about Capello. I think some of that is a bit exaggerated probably by Capello. But anyway, but he really believed, in, in term, exaggerated in terms of how much Capello got out of it, but it certainly did wonders for other people within his organization. Mm. This is stuff that nobody levels of innovation that nobody in football had, uh, had, had thought of or, or even conceived. He created, if you remember, the, um, the Mundialito. What, mm. He didn't create it. It was, he sort of resurrected it, right. which was... I don't know how many people in this country know or in, in, in Great Britain know about Mundialito, but this, tell us about, this was the tournament in Uruguay. Um, I think it was held in Uruguay once, yeah. and then I remember... Oh, was it, and then afterwards just And they around. bring it to, they brought it, as Gab was saying, they, they resurrect it and they host it in Milan? No? Yeah, it was, it was a summer-friendly tournament, okay. which, again, today means, oh, what's a big deal? It's the Audi Cup at the Emirates, you know. But no, back then, nobody was doing this. Mm. And in his mind, Mundialito, which means Little World Cup, in his mind, the idea was that it would be a precursor to, let me know if you've heard of this recently, a Club World Cup for... Uh, for clubs, mm. you know, run by the clubs, for the clubs. And again, nobody was talking about this stuff in the mid-80s except for him. To what extent was he key in turning the European Cup into the Champions League? Well, he had pushed the idea all along. What he wanted was just basically a, a European Super League that would run, you know, in addition to you'd, you'd play midweek in the European Super League, you would play weekends in, in your domestic league. Certainly, they were at the top of the table. Um, he hired a man to work for him named Umberto Gandini, who would later become uh, chief executive uh, uh, of Roma. And the Minister of Foreign Affairs. He was known as the Minister of Foreign Affairs. <laughs> yeah, he kept the relationships with other clubs, with other institutions, uh, because obviously Berlusconi couldn't, even though he would like to have us believe that he only sleeps 20 minutes a day and stuff. Right. And, you know, he couldn't follow everything. So in Gandini towards the outside world and in Galliani, Internally, mm. um, Adriano Galliani, the man who looks like Uncle Fester, um, mustard yellow ties. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he found he created sort of the, the, this perfect triumvirate of of synergy. And Galliani, by the way, it's kind of weird because when he tells a story about when he first met Berlusconi, mm. it was like in those movies where you kind of meet your sort of you know soul brother, but you have no idea. Um, was he putting up TV antennas for Berlusconi? So. No, not for Berlusconi, for himself. Okay. So basically... Galliani you, is, you, you know him, as you say, the Uncle Festa or Dr. Evil figure who you would see in the yeah, stands at San Siro. Yeah. So Galliani had two, two passions, right? One well, real passion was football. And right. in fact, he was an executive yeah. at Monza, at Monza mm. which I'm sure we'll refer back to at some point. Mm. But on top of that, the way, he made his, the way he made his living was if you lived in the north of Italy, you could sometimes, depending where you live and the weather and whatever... You could receive signals from Swiss Italian television, from French television, from Capodistria, which is this weird Italian-speaking part of, I guess, what is now Croatia and Slovenia. Yeah. 
but but it was difficult to to receive these signals. So what he did was he put up repeating stations throughout the north of Italy and antennas that allowed you to go and watch these technically foreign TV channels. Mm. And he was phenomenally successful with that because there weren't many alternatives to, you know, the, I guess it was only two channels, two state channels at the time. Right. Um, so he really had this entrepreneurship. So they had this, this idea that both had this love of television and this love of football. Berlusconi might not admit this, but Gagliani much more hands-on on the right. football side because he'd had that experience before. Okay, so he was the, what, the amministratore delegato, no? The From chief Milan. executive. Okay. Uh, 31 years, the pair of them effectively ran Milan. 29 trophies in that time. Let's talk about some of the football because that, that first season, that first full season, which began with that incredible presentation, that kind of statement of intent, the helicopters arriving, the Wagner playing to the, the, the Fox. Lee's hair blowing in the wind. <laughs> and the key really was it was going to be the, the best stars playing the best football. Yeah, and by the way, you mentioned the arena there for scenery, right? This is not the Manchester Evening News arena. <laughs> uh, the arena in Milan was goes back to... Ground, no? Yeah, but fundamentally, there, there were events that it goes back to Roman times. Yeah, it's a, mm. Like, it's not... Like, when we talk about... When we're from Milan, you know, we're not Florence, we're not Venice, we're not Disneyland for tourists, we're not Rome. <laughs> um, we do other things. So we don't go and emphasize the really cool historic stuff that's in, that's in our midst. But the arena has been there and has been the site of sporting events since Roman times, for, mm. for, for 2,000 years. Uh, it is where Inter played their football in the 1920s, I think, mm-hmm. uh, and 30s. Um, but to go and have a presentation there with the helicopters coming in, sort of the visual impact was just stunning. It, it really you know, set the foundation for, for what would be a re- real revolution in football. 86-87, they finished fifth that year. They beat Sampdoria in, uh, in a playoff and get into the UEFA Cup. In the Italian Cup, they are knocked out in a famous match by second division Parma, coached by one Arrigo Sacchi, whose name goes into the Berlusconi notebook. The following season, Sacchi, who's never managed before, as you say, in Serie A, has taken over the team, and there have been some major, major signings, uh, notably Carlo Ancelotti, uh, Ruud Hullit, who famously Berlusconi serenaded uh, with a performance of La Vie en Rose on a hotel piano while trying to get him to commit to the club, and Rue was so blown away that he <laughs> inked a contract straight away. That, that's what sealed the deal for him. I believe it a was. A singing president. Yeah. yeah. And uh, Marco Van Basten. Essentially, it was the basis of the team. You have Baresi there already, you have Maldini there. It was the basis of the team that World Soccer uh, magazine defines the greatest of all time. Well, and also, I mean, Saki, I think, uh, in his own self-interest, will, will, will say that the team that he won the league with was nine elevenths the same team as he'd inherited from Lead Home, and right. very much to show what a masterclass of coaching he'd uh, he put on. Was, was obviously Van Basten got injured yeah. and hardly played that mm. first season, and I think Ancelotti had his ten millionth knee injuries uh, that season as well. And you make a good point about Saki. Saki took players like uh, Kiko Ivani, who you know, had been there, had been relegated with the club um, and turned him into, you know, arguably one of the best wingers in City. A guy who should have, I'm sure he was captain in the end, but should have had many more caps, really. Um, but he was really freed by the way that, that, that Saki played him. And that made a huge, huge difference. Right. Donadoni as well coming in. Where, where did Donadoni come in from? Atlanta. 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 Well, it's interesting because 
everyone associates that team with a style of football that was uh, foreign to Italy. No, in that um, they and played very, very modern. Very modern. Um, it was all about uh, pressing and uh, not thinking of the result in terms of yeah, let's keep a clean sheet and maybe nick one, but. Um, Win and convince was the thing. And it seemed to, to Berlusconi that it really mattered how this team plays. Right. And the regular theme throughout what his 30 years would always be something as ludicrous as my team has to have two strikers and a number 10. Right. Which he wrote in a letter to Carlo Ancelotti when he was manager, no, that you will have to play with two up top. But the curious thing is, James, that Marco van Basten, who's just released uh, an autobiography, oh. has kind of said, look, Saki, he didn't invent anything. That team was all about the defence, was all about the back line. You know, we had Franco Beres in Paolo Maldini. You know, it wasn't particularly attacking. Ultimately, it was down to how well those guys did at the back. And we would just, you know, come up with what we did and win games like that. Van Basten and Saki, not particularly friendly, the yeah. pair of them as well. Not in my style of feeling. No. He also apologised to Saki, didn't he? Because he says that, well, one day I said, you know, we're the best team in the world in spite of you. Yeah. Not because of you. Right. Which, <laughs> if you want to hurt Saki, that's how you do it. And the, and the way Van Basten tells it is that Saki just, yeah, sort of accepted that and then just kind of walked out, didn't say a word, <laughs> kind of went and cried into his pillow. Wow. But the odd thing is, if you go visit Arrigo Saki on a foggy day in his house in Romagna, his two dogs, he's got these two German shepherds, right? I think because he's had these two identical dogs for like a long time, I'm sure it's not the same dogs, right. but he makes that a big deal of the fact that his dogs are named Rude and Marco. Uh-huh. So I don't know if Marco's the dog that he goes and he kicks and mistreats <laughs> and Rude is the one that he loves and cuddles or, mm. or if for Saki, because Saki doesn't listen to other people, if it will all just water off a duck's back. Mm. And he was never, you never realized that Marco van Basten wasn't a huge fan of his. Do the dogs respond to his commands and follow these orders? Well, that's or, I mean, that's, yes. I'm sure Rude does. Yeah. yeah, the other one I'm not so sure. So that first season, Saki wins his only Scudetto uh, with Milan. Uh, his first, he would say. When did he win another one? He didn't, but okay. he would yeah. still say his first. <laughs> okay, <laughs> all right. The key game, because they make an as- astonishing comeback against, of all clubs, uh, Maradona's Napoli, who I think at nine points clear at one point, were they not? Yeah. And the key game here is that Clash on the 1st of May 1988 when down at the San Paolo in Naples Milan come out 3-2 winners. Contrazione, ecco Gulit lanciarsi verso la porta di Garella, tiro e palo da parte di Van Basten, il pallone non ci sembra che sia andato in rete, invece è entrato in rete. È stato Van Basten che ha messo il pallone in rete. There are a lot of backstories about that campaign featuring Napoli, featuring some of the pressures that Napoli and their players might have been experiencing from people in the city. But that game, without a shadow of a doubt, was a fantastic performance from Milan. Yeah, and uh, afterwards, what, it was a full house at the San Paolo, and they were applauded off. And I think Saki, again, um, loves to lord that over, not his critics, but to, to say that was a real kind of feather in his cap in terms of, look, people believe in what I'm doing. Um, you know, I get criticised every week in the papers um, by the likes of Gianni Brera, who seemed to be the ideologue of Catinaccio and this kind of very weird ethnographic kind of view of Italian football as being, you know, ultimately defensive and negative. And, you know, his front foot attacking football was was winning over not just Milan fans, but um, football fans around the country. 
Well, it earned them their first title in nine years, nine years in which they've been through scandal and relegation twice. The following season, they get their third tulip as Frank Reichard arrives, and they really... Galliani had stuffed the contract down his pants. Is that right? Yeah, because... No, not not down Frank Reichard's pants, but when they went to sign him from Sporting in Lisbon, I think uh, the local fans were a little bit... uh, annoyed that the club right. was about to sell Frank and um, turned up outside the hotel where this negotiation was going on and Galliani sneaks out with the paperwork in his, I imagine, quite large briefs. Yeah, yeah. you'd hope so. Yeah. Uh, this is the season they established really their stranglehold on the European game. The final we all know about European champions in front of an estimated 100,000 Milanisti against uh, Stade Bucharest. But along the way... I think equally significantly was an absolute destruction of the dominant team in Spain that year or for the previous five years, Real Madrid. Ancelotti, 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 destra, gol! Grandissimo gol di Ancelotti! Ancelotti al diciottesimo porta in vantaggio il Milan, grandissima conclusione di Carlo Ancelotti. That was really the, the exclamation point. Because, in fact, prior to that, in that European Cup, they hadn't been great. And, in fact, that was also the year that uh, when they played Red Star Belgrade, they were very close to going out. And then... The fog. Right, so they were 1-0 down. Fog came in. Well, and the game was going to be called in the fog. <laughs> and, <laughs> and the game was replayed in this time. God sent the fog God to help his friend fog, right. Silvio. Mm-hmm. Um, we always forget how close things were to taking a completely different turn. But that was kind of like a coming out party, the absolute demolition of Real Madrid. And I think, if memory serves, the first leg had finished 1-1 at the Bernabeu. Real Madrid felt a bit aggrieved and whatever else. But they go back and... They, they had no complaints. It was it was an utter, utter demolition. That was the Real Madrid side with the Putre, with the Quinta del Buitre mm. with with Hugo Sanchez and who well, yeah. wasn't part of the Quinta, but Butragueño and Manolo Sanchez and Michel. Fashion Week, as Julian Laurence calls it. <laughs> Ancelotti it was who opened the scoring. All three of the Dutchmen uh, found the net, and Roberto Donadoni made it five nil. Following season. Another European title, this time defeating Benfica in the final. And the following season, another world title. This time in Europe, things not going so well because you had the match against Olympic Marseille, which was a really bizarre event. One of the floodlights goes at the velodrome and the decision is made, officially by Galliani, but it's always been suspected by Berlusconi, to take the team off the field and refuse to play the rest of the game, for which they are... Well, they were going out at the time. They were one nil down. Yeah. So that was that was the argument. The thinking was, well, from Galliani's perspective, in terms of getting the people off the pitch, was that we don't have the safety conditions to play, and our game is so precise and whatever else. He truly believed that UEFA would not sanction a game without full lighting. Now you can go on YouTube and see what the conditions are like. I yeah, one of the floodlights is out. Were they trying to do the red star great again? <laughs> I I think that was. That was his idea, except, mm. you know, harder to do with the floodlights because, you know, you can send Silvano Ramaccioni down to go and, like, cut one cord or two cords, but you can't <laughs> just can't. Um, right. Anyway, that year they do win another world title. 
But when you were talking about world titles, and, yeah. James, it reminded me of one of kind of Berlusconi's more famous kind of things that he ticks that he would use to do, which is like he would see a player in one of these games usually and say, we have to have that player mm. like Claudio Borghi. Mm. And basically then it force him upon uh, Arrigo Saki, even though Saki was like, this guy is crap. I don't want to play him. Well, that side, as I mentioned, was rated the best football team of all time by World Soccer Magazine. But great as they were, was the next version of Milan even better? Generazione di Fenomeni by Listadio. Wow, that's taking Gab right back to the summer of 1991. Arrigo Sacchi and Van Basten have fallen out. Sacchi is essentially finessed off to the national team and Berlusconi is faced with another decision. How's he going to replace the, the man who built the greatest Italian side ever? With a business trainee from his Fininvest company, of course, by the name of Fabio Capello. Now, Capello's Milan, there was no let up for Italy, or in most cases Europe, under Don Fabio. 91, they immediately win the title with an unbeaten season. Gab, was this an even better side? I mean, first of all, for whatever else you may think about Fabio Capello, he was seen when he when he came in, we touched upon this when we did our episode on him, but he was seen as like, oh, look, here comes a yes man. Right? Because Arrigo Sacchi is not the easiest person to deal with. He doesn't listen to other people. He just kind of nods along and then talks over you. Um, but Capello was a guy who was seen as a Berlusconi loyalist and had been through his training program. And and the idea was, all right, he's just going to come here and be a doormat and Berlusconi is going to be the de facto manager. But Capello showed that that was most definitely not the case. And... What Capello was really, really good at was doing something that Saki was not so good at on the man management side. Um, because around that time, this is another thing that we need to give credit to Berlusconi for. At the time, football squads were composed of 13, 14 senior pros, an old backup goalkeeper, and a couple kids. Um, you know, it's not like the famous Aston Villa squad that won it, or one that became English champions using like 13 players or anything like that. But people had small squads. Berlusconi said, well, wait a minute, if we go and we buy more players, then A, these good players won't be playing against us for other teams, B, we can deal with injuries and suspensions much better, C, if we rotate these guys, they'll be fresher and and better rested, and D, they're all going to compete against each other because nobody's going to be sure of their place in the team. Mm. Now, today it seems obvious because everybody's got big squads, but nobody was doing this in 1990, 1991, when he began introducing this. Nobody had that foresight. And you can be Berlusconi's biggest critic for many different reasons. But he thought of it first, and he made it happen in football in a way that nobody else did. And he had the money to do it. So 92, 93, to the team that's already just a a phenomenon, they add Lentini, Gigi Lentini. World record. Yep, the Pope loved that transfer. (laughs) Yeah, even the Pope complained about that. Jean-Pierre Papin, the reigning Ballon d'Or. Je pipi. Arrives uh, Zvonimir Boban and Dejan Savicevic. What I like is of this uh, era at Milan, where under Capello they win what four league championships in five years and the Champions League. They go from in the first year under uh, Capello, they score seventy-four goals and concede twenty-one. So the next highest attack in that season was Zenit Zeman's Foggia with fifty-eight. So they outscored that by quite 
a distance. And then you get to 93-94, and they win the league championship, scoring only 36 goals in 34 games. That's the next season. Conceding 15. I think it's the third season right. of Capello. When Which that means one of the when I wrote my Capella book, that's one of the things that I asked him again and again about this, and he'd come up with a different answer every time about how is it possible that a team that's so free scoring would suddenly become so defensive? Well, the, the the kind of commonly held view was that it was because Marco van Basten went out with this interminable series of ankle injuries. Uh, Berlusconi, for reasons that we'll get onto shortly, didn't want to be seen to be spending a lot of money on a replacement like Daniel Fonseca. And so they decided if we weren't going to be scoring goals, we're just not going to concede any. I mean, yeah, well, that's a bit facile. It's a bit facile. To put right? that, that tally into context, 36 goals they scored that season, that's the single-season scoring record that Gonzalo Higuain established. And, you know, Capella did some trial and error. You know, he tried a back three. He, he, he tried... He tried different formations and stuff. It really was as if he became more preoccupied. Like when he arrived, he looked at it, and I think this is one of Cabello's skills. He looked at it and said, well, we're playing such attacking football under Saki. I'll just keep it going, right? If it's not broke, don't fix it. Mm. All I got to do is fix the other stuff, which is, you know, not be a weirdo in public and not go and harass the players. He then realized that having won that way, he's like, all right, well, this kind of bugs me, the fact that we're leaking goals. kind of bugs me that these guys are pushing on. Let's be more defensive. That is a stock explanation, but it can't explain why you go from 74 goals to 36 goals. 36 goals in a 30-game season, as it was then, hmm. is just appalling. I mean, teams that get relegated score that many goals. Right. They could score goals when they wanted, and you mentioned the fact they won a European Cup or Champions League in this period. Yeah, Gap mentions teams get relegated with 35 goals. One team did get relegated. In fact, two teams got relegated with 35 goals that year, Udinese and Atalanta. Right. <laughs> so, 93, they were in the final again of uh, the Champions League, this time losing to Marseille, Buna Tapia's Marseille. So, put all the asterisks you want alongside that. But the following year, 94, they're again in the final game where they produced possibly their greatest performance of all. We've We've given this its own special edition of Golazzo, but just, you know, if you haven't heard that, they're facing the dream team, Johan Cruyff Barcelona. Milan are without Baresi and Costa Curta. There's little doubt, I think, in most people's minds who's going to win this game. Cruyff's even having his picture taken with the trophy. But they produce not just a victory over that Barcelona, they've come up with the single biggest winning scoreline in the history of the competition. And then... Sveglia, un gol incredibile, Trevisoco, il gol di Stavicevic. As I say, we've given it its own galad, so if you check out one thing, though, make it Il Genio's goal there, Dejan Stavicevic. Yeah, an incredible lob which just finishes just underneath the bar, doesn't it, by a whisker. It's, yeah, magnificent, one of the great final goals. The way that they also came out and played that game in a way that Cruyff totally wasn't expecting and couldn't adjust to. You know, in the end, they played up front with with Daniele Massaro, who was sort of this sort of runt of a striker who'd kind of always come in and out. (laughs) No, but, you know, he's the runt of the litter, I mean. Okay. He had a pretty remarkable career for a man who wasn't regarded as particularly technically gifted. He he was there to be the third or fourth striker, is Uh is what I'm driving at. And Dejan Savicevic, who, of course, was not a striker. No. He was the genius who kind of wander the field and did what he wanted. And um, that game, for me, is remembered for Marcel Desailly. And 
to this day, I think even Berlusconi said at the time, what Desailly did in that game was the perfect synthesis of strength, athleticism, and intelligence. Mm. There's a wonderful sequence where you see like five Barcelona players, including I believe Pep Guardiola, if he was there, um, surrounding the ball. And then you see this sort of long leg just kind of go in as if like the Fantastic Four retrieve the ball and then the camera pans over and it's Desailly running away from them. Right. Um, that was one of the most dominant performances. Well, more titles will come for Milan, both in Italy and internationally. But 94 marks something of a turning point for Berlusconi's stewardship of the club because the president has found another passion. No, politics. How much did Milan make possible his meteoric rise to become prime minister of the country about six months after entering? Uh, the business of politics, and what would it mean for the Rossoneri themselves? Those are some of the things we'll be discussing, along with his Nobel Peace Prize candidature and Bunga Bunga, and so much more when we return in the Silvio Berlusconi story part two. For now, many thanks for being with us thus far to Gabriele Marcotti and James Horncastle and you, listener. We'll see you next time for the second part. The Athletic.